if we join together, amplify each other, hold each other up, explore each other tech technologies with curiosity, even if it's not our own pet solution, then we are going to be a more formidable force in the world. And there's frankly, like our biggest enemy is not anybody who's pro-nuclear at all. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. In this episode, I'm interviewing a fellow supporter of nuclear energy, who, although not a Canadian, she posted an article on Canada Day singing the praises of the Can-Do Reactor. I think Can-Do is an underappreciated technological wonder, similar in a, in a way to the Avro Arrow. It is also at risk of going down that same path unless Canadians rise up and tell their MPs and MPPs that we need more of them. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app and share it with your friends. Uh, I'd love to hear comments from you on my Facebook group, The Rational View. Angelica Ung is a journalist specializing in Asia and energy matters living in Taipei, Taiwan. In her spare time, she's a nuclear energy enthusiast and advocate, known as the Manic Nuclear Scheme Girl on her substack. Angelica, welcome to The Rational View. Hi, Al. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a great day to talk about nuclear. So uh, I've seen you on, on the internet, on social media. You're very active. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got interested in nuclear energy? Well, it all actually started when I started working as a business reporter in Taiwan about two years ago. Uh, before that, I had very basic normie views on nuclear energy. I thought it was dangerous. I thought it was contaminating. I thought it was on the way out, um, but mostly I didn't think much about it at all. Um, but then uh, I started being a business journalist in Taiwan where... Um, the power crunch is real. We are we don't have enough electricity um, capacity for the amount of industry we have going on in our little island. And uh, I realized that one of the main reasons why this is so is because we are retiring nuclear energy um, quite early, earlier than expected. Basically, we planned a whole bunch of nuclear capacity, including a brand spanking new advanced boiling water reactor. Um, that has just never been used because um, the um, current administration decided to phase out nuclear by 2025. Um, the more I learned about nuclear, the more I realized that it really wasn't as scary as everybody made it out to be. I myself was shocked when I found out that nobody actually died in Fukushima in 2011. Um, and basically, um, I realized that not everybody has the um, advantage of a midlife career change um, to uh, put them in front of the information, the facts that actually clearly states um, something is not as it seems. So that is why in my spare time, um, I have become something of a nuclear energy advocate. I think it's that important. And most of my, you know, other, I, I don't, I'm actually not a huge, um, I'm not a huge 
activist in other aspects of my work. I'm just a journalist. Uh, I do some reporting. I do some analysis. My work has appeared in The Telegraph. I used to work for the Taipei Times. Um, and uh, I actually do a lot of my bread and butter comes from my work in the offshore wind supply chain. Uh, I'm an industrial reporter. Um, but my passion is nuclear because I simply think that it is um, one of the very rare occasions in life where um, it really is that easy. Um, thanks to the great work done by our fellow humans before us, uh, we basically have something that is low carbon and um, uh, highly energetically efficient and dense and can solve a lot of our problems. And we're simply not recognizing it. It's a huge free lunch that is not getting eaten. It's great to have uh, journalists on side with nuclear energy. Uh, time and again, you find that um, they're basically just swallowing the story uh, that's out there about nuclear not being green, or that they're you know swallowing the 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 rhetoric from from the anti-nuclear lobby. So it's great to have critical minds out there reporting on this. Do you get any blowback or any feedback for taking what is an unpopular potentially an unpopular opinion in your in your journalism? Oh, absolutely. Before I go into that, let me explain to you a little bit about how the sausage is made, journalistically speaking. Um, right now, I'm more concentrating in, in um, several, a couple of areas in my journalism. But before, as a business reporter, I basically ca um, carried energy as a part of my, um, I, I wasn't really that specialized in nuclear. I don't think there are that many reporters that are that specialized in nuclear. So, you know, I could be writing one story that's about um, one aspect of, let's say I could be writing a story about laptops one day and uh, um, offshore wind the other, and then to have a story about nuclear. Um, and it's very difficult uh, when you're going into a topic that's highly controversial, um, fairly cold. It can be hard for a journalist that only has to write a story about nuclear maybe once a year or a couple of times a year to truly have the, the working knowledge that's required to actually play it fair down the middle. So they end up listening to one side and they listen to the other side and they, they just kind of take a little bit from this and a little bit from that. Um, and unfortunately, that's, that's how a lot of the mainstream news gets made. Um, but I also think it's 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 interesting. Um, you know, sometimes I would post a mainstream piece and say, this is a good piece of nuclear. And my uh, nuclear advocate friend was like, what are you talking about? There's all this untruth in it. And they listen to this guy who is like full of BS and whatever. I'm just like, no, no, this is this is good. If you have to look at the placement. Um, where's the critic coming in? Where is the nuclear advocate coming in? Is the nuclear advocate getting more airtime? And if on balance, um, you know, uh, they're getting good airtime and good placement. Um, that piece is positive for nuclear overall. Um, in my personal life, um, obviously, when I'm writing professionally, I, you know, I'm not an advocate. So, um, you know, I could be writing about anything. I don't bring up nuclear advocatism, you know, out of um, uh, sort of uh, out of uh, context. So it's really been 
getting more blowback personally rather than professionally. Um, uh, the platform where I got, you know, I would say um, 90% of the blowback and hate is actually Facebook. And it's from people who are strongly anti-nuclear, um, who are my friends. And that actually makes it a lot more hurtful because um, they would accuse me of being um, paid for by big nuclear, like, uh, excuse me, where's my check from big nuclear? I've been waiting <laughs> and, and there's there's no check from big nuclear. Um, meanwhile, I am like, and I don't want to malign the industry because obviously I believe that I'm, you know, um, Obviously, I am uh, working in it, but, you know, Offshore Wind has been extremely lucrative for me in terms of um, subscriptions and sponsorships uh, for my work in it. And I do good work. I'm proud of my work, but nobody ever questions it. Whereas nuclear, where um, all my work is absolutely just out of love and um, as an advocate, um, people question my motivations. People question uh, my ability. Quest- people question uh, my knowledge. And um, I find that very disappointing coming from friends. Um, but I o- can also accept that this is how deep um, anti-nuclear sentiments have gone, that they would question a friend that they know is a respected journalist and they would never otherwise question her integrity or intelligence, but they will do it in the context of nuclear power. That's sad. Yeah, I was also going to ask if you're getting paid for this because you put together recently a a Happy Canada Day article praising the can-do reactors. And, uh, you know, we Canadians are always suspicious about foreign praise. We have something of an inferiority complex here living next to the U.S. all the time, which, you know, gives the the majority of the news and the things happening to them. So thank you for for that wonderful article that you wrote on the can-do and you're not a shill. This is this is real heartfelt praise for the Candy Reactor. So thank you very much. No, no. And I'm totally like, I'm not opposed, by the way, to getting paid in the future for my work in nuclear at all. I think there's a um, <laughs> absolutely a, um, you know, if I can't do what I do for offshore wind in nuclear, I would be a happy woman, by the way. Um, and what I do for offshore wind is I'm a supply chain reporter. I report on the supply chain, and I would absolutely love to do that for nuclear. There simply um, hasn't been the opportunity yet for me. Um, but in terms of the can-do, the reason I focused on it is simply because it's such a great story. That's how it first caught my attention. Um, the story of a bunch of scientists, um, basically, um, in during World War II, when the Nazis begin to make gains. You know, all the scientists ran from the continent to Britain. And then Britain started looking um, not necessarily safe. So they all decamped to Canada so that they can continue their work. And they ended up in Chalk River. Um, That's how Canada ended up with one of the most advanced... Down the road for me. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, It's legendary nuclear laboratory. And they did uh, a lot of good work there. And at the end of World War II, you have to remember back then, nuclear is not like the way it is now. It was really the future. Everybody wanted to be in on it. And uh, Canada didn't really have the heavy industry to um, produce uh, nuclear power plants the way everybody else was doing it, which is with those 
heavy-duty reactors, uh, reactor vessels. That requires forging abilities that they simply didn't have back in the day. Actually, they don't have now. Actually, a lot of countries don't have now. The U.S. used to do it. They kind of forgot. It's amazing. <clears throat> but anyhow, Canada back in the 50s certainly didn't have the ability to make that vessel that's basically at the heart of every other nuclear power plant. But it just so happens that in Chalk River, down the road from you, um, they were, um, during the war, uh, they were making experimental reactors with heavy water uh, as a moderator and vacuum tubes. Um, this is a totally different structure from other nuclear reactors. And uh, they they thought, well, maybe we can take this research reactor and um, turn it towards power use. And this has interesting ramifications later on. But back then, I believe they did it for two reasons. Simply because it's easier to manufacture the vacuum tubes if you have a lower industrial base. Um, and the other reason being the heavy water is a much more efficient moderator uh, for the nuclear rea fission reaction. And you can use um, natural uranium rather than enriched uranium. Canada is rich in mineral resources, including a lot of uranium. Um, but in the enrichment of uranium is now, before we go on. Yeah, just I, I want to uh, explain what you mean by moderator for neutrons. So um, when you have a fission reaction, uh, the uranium splits into and releases these very fast neutrons, and the neutrons escape uh, from the uranium, and they they just they go through just about anything. They don't do much. If you want them to create a chain reaction, you have to slow them down so that they spend more time in the uranium. So they're more likely to create another fission reaction. And this is how you get a chain reaction or a critical, a critical state in the, in the core. And the heavy water slows down those fast neutrons so that they can make more fission products. So they make more energy, more heat, and provide provide more energy. So I just wanted to, to just do it a little aside for everyone who doesn't know all of the the technology uh, and the technology. I think of Candu. You know, it's it's a wonderful design. What what are the advantages of of the Candu design? Well, well, thank you, thank you, Al, for slowing up. That's a great. Uh, you're a great educator and uh, reminds me not to uh, completely run away without addressing the fundamentals. So first of all, let's let's look at the name, right? Can do. What does it stand for? Canadian deuterium uranium, and the deuterium part is the heavy water. And I ha I have to try and uh, uh, you know fast forward to um, you know a year ago I wouldn't know what deuterium is at all. It's uh, basically water with one of the hydrogens with an extra um, neutron on it. So as you were, you know, very uh, clearly um, and lucidly describing, when you have this fusion chain reaction and you have these neutrons zipping about, uh, you need to have a way to slow them down so that they can cause more fusion reactions and have more neutrons come out. And uh, um, what happens is if you have a lot of neutrons zipping about and they knock into a water, a regular light water particle, the water could just swallow up the neutron. Uh, and then that's the end of your neutron and your neutron economy is not going to be that good. That is why um, 
you have to enrich uranium with more of the fissile isotope uranium-235 in order to sustain a chain reaction. Now, what happens when you use heavy water or deuterium as a moderator is that a deuterium already has an extra neutron in there. It's like they're already holding something, so when you throw a ball at them, they can't catch it. So instead of um, them catching this uh, extra neutron and then holding onto it, then, you know, your neutron economy goes down, um, the neutron just kind of bounces off this uh, deuterium particle and it slows down, uh, ready to knock into another uranium and causing another chain reaction. Um, and this is why um, you can actually not only <laughs> use natural uranium, of course, that would sustain the reaction, uh, but also um, nuclear waste from other reactors. Um, or maybe we can call it, in this case, just nuclear spent fuel. If it's spent in a normal um, pressurized water reactor or boiling water reactor, it actually still has more fissile uranium-235 in it than natural uranium. So you can actually just go ahead, feed it into a can-do, and get another 30% uh, or so of energy out of it. Um, theoretically. Now, it hasn't been like worth it to do almost um, yet because uranium is so plentiful, um, but it's absolutely something that should be explored and um, that would get you more energy per volume of um, nuclear waste produced. Hmm. So the can-do can burn what's called nuclear waste from American reactors effectively. We can use that. We can get even more energy out of it without doing anything to it. Well, not yeah. Wow, yeah, th that's that's amazing. Yep, it's it's ready to go. I mean, obviously, obviously, it needs to be in the right form, and you know, uh, I, I don't know what it takes to do that, but it's ready to go in terms of just feeding it. Yeah, right shape, right bundles, and yeah, the, the can do uses um, these uh fuel bundles that are almost like uh, logs <laughs> in shape and size. You know, it's like they, you, you, you have, if you lift it up, it looks like you're lifting a log. And then you look at it, it's like it's a bundle of, um, of zircaloy um, channels and inside are the little um, pellets. Um, and they, they're constantly feeding into, to, to help you visualize the can-do. Um, instead of a centralized reactor, it's horizontal. And all those vacuum tubes are like um, in a bunch of channels in a much bigger, imagine a big bundle of, imagine getting a big bundle of chopsticks together and then turn it on, on its side. And that's kind of like the shape of the can-do reactors, all contained in a big drum called the calandria. And each of those fuel channels um, take those bundles of fuel um, and you're basically always fueling and uh, refueling um, because we talked about using the natural uranium. So this here comes another uh, another um, reason why can do is different, radically different from the other family of uh, light water reactors. For every other reactor in the world, you fuel it up, you seal it up. You let it go for months, and then you have to refuel. And the refueling process um, can take a month or 
during which your reactor is not producing any power. For the can-do, um, the refueling is done differently. You need to refill much more often. But to counter that, they have this horizontal refueling system that allows you to refuel continuously on one end and the spent fuel it comes out of the other. So while you are fueling and refueling, um, your, your reactor never goes offline. Um, and so I, I think it, it's maybe the Darlington, um, one of the Darlington units that has the record for being like the um, nuclear reactor being longest continuous um, online. And I forgot the exact uh, date, but um, length, but maybe it's like 900 days, something really ridiculously long like that. I think, it, I think it's over a um, thousand. Yeah. And so, oh, wow. Okay. Maybe, maybe it's. I, I would not be surprised um, because, well, you know, I read that uh, piece, but it was still going strong then. So um, that obviously is an advantage for the grid. You don't have a, a big nuclear reactor plant going on and offline. But yeah, that that is a unique, unique aspect of the Cadu reactor. And because the, you're not using enriched uranium, the spent fuel from the, the Cadu also doesn't last as long is not uh, radioactive or as dangerous uh, as long as the the uh, light water reactors the pressurized uh, US designs that are that are so common so the the can do's I think are, are something like 10% you had said of, of all reactors in the world are can do reactors is that correct well um it's correct to the extent that I went to Wikipedia, <laughs> looked up all the reactors in the world that they have listed, which is about 440. And if you count up the Kandus, um, there's, um, it, it comes out to around 10% if you count the Indian Kandu clones. Uh, they're called the um, Indian heavy, in, Indian indigenous heavy water reactor, something like that. Um, and, uh, they are can-do-esque, so I count them as can-do's. Um, but yeah, there are not that many of them left. And uh, it, in addition to being a very small percentage of the total number of reactors, um, there aren't that many coming online, which I find really worrying. Because I think um, for not just for all the reasons we discussed, but just, there's still a lot of innovation left in that design that we haven't realized yet. Yeah. You you highlighted in your article the fact that uh, you had a friend, uh, I think it was a Canadian friend, that wasn't even aware of the continuing existence of can-do reactors, despite yeah. the fact that they produce like 60% of Ontario's electricity and 15% of Canada's overall electricity. This, this is a common theme, Canadians underselling themselves and their technology. Those of us who understand the field of nuclear energy realize that the can-do is is like the Avro Arrow of nuclear. I don't know. Have you heard of the Avro Arrow? No, no. What is it? This was a, a fighter jet that Canada, that Canadians developed back in the 60s. Uh, it was like a world-leading fighter jet and was the, the fastest and the... The, the, the best fighter jet of its time. Uh, but Canada decided that because uh, nuclear weapons were suddenly become inter intercontinental ballistic missiles were becoming a threat that no one would need fighter jets anymore. So they stopped it and burnt the plans and uh, discontinued the pro the whole process. And 
I feel like we're at risk of the same thing with can do. We're going along that same path and we need to stop it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, um, I'll, I truly believe when that when something amazing is created, um, it doesn't just belong to your country anymore. It is the heritage of the whole world and the country that invented it or developed it is only, um, you know, keeping it and uh, um, guarding it and developing it. Um, but it is a heritage of the world. And um, the Canadians absolutely, the can do so good. I believe the Canadians um, really have a responsibility to keep this technology alive and develop it for the good of humanity. It is um, basically um, something that we, technology that we badly need for our future. Um, and uh, no Canadian modesty cannot get in the way of, of humanity's future. Um, <laughs> and, and I have to tell you, talking to my friend, I was just so amazed by how dismissive he was of the Candus. It was like something that was ancient history that didn't concern him and might even be somewhat uncool. Um, it's just, oh, oh, Candus? They still make those? Are there still any around? Wow. I haven't heard about them since I was, a, was in school. Wow. Wow. They're still going? Um, yeah. And um, to me, it's kind of incredible because um, not only is it a great story, um, it's a cool technology that that still has so much left to give, and it's being treated shoddily by the Canadian government, I believe. Um, so basically, um, we know that um, no, we know that Canada actually is uh, making plants for more nuclear plants, and. Um, they are going with the GE Hitachi um, BRX 300 small modular reactor design. There's nothing wrong with that reactor. It's a great reactor. It's going to be a workhorse for the nuclear industry going forward. Um, but why are the Canadians not championing their own technology? Why are they not supporting the CANDU with a supply chain that is 96%? Canadian. Um, and uh, they are uh, supporting, uh, don't get me wrong, I love the BRX 300. It, it too has got championship DNA. And, but um, I don't think it's any more, like if you have two, two, um, two kids of equal potential in front of you, but one is your kid, <laughs> which one are you going to uh, be supporting and uh, hopefully championing and setting up for success in the future? I, I just find it perplexing, especially when they are still yeah, yeah, trying to. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. They're still trying to sell the can do to other countries um, as an export item. And this is you know, for obvious reasons, of course, you want to sell your own technology. But how does it look to your potential buyers if you are trying to sell them this technology, trying to tell them how good it is? Meanwhile, you're not using it at home. You're not championing it at home. <laughs> that's yeah, I, I don't yeah. think that's, that's a great look. The government's dropped the ball. Yeah. I think uh, back just after the Fukushima 
accident, the government provided an exclusive license to uh, SNC-Lavalin on its on all the can-do technology. Uh, and they provided this for $15 million, basically oh peanuts. God. Oh, my uh, God. After all the you know decades of development. That's just giving away the store. And I hear it's not even such a great company. Mm. Yeah. It, it's political... Um, toxic right now because yeah, they've had some basically scandals. that's all i've heard yeah. um and a couple of years later i think ontario was planning on building two more can do's at its darlington site but the, the the government of the time decided to cancel the planned expansion uh and they they had this big fanfare they introduced a green energy act where they would subsidize solar and wind and this was going to be the, the 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 green ticket for ontario and of course, it continues to saddle us with billions of dollars in debt due to these 20-year fixed-rate contracts for wind and solar, which are not much good in Canada. I mean, solar having a uh, capacity factor below 15% in most cases, and wind produces out of sync with demand. So basically, it's it's all just curtailed. Uh, I think 25% of our wind energy is just curtailed or sold at a loss to the U.S. So I think af after the first four or five years of this GEA, we, we were $37 billion in debt with negligible impacts to our overall green production of electricity. Um, and the, the several, the, the weird thing about this is that several mainstream political parties in Canada are still anti-nuclear. Uh, how does this happen? Well, uh, <laughs> to me, that is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my life. You always think somewhere along the line, somebody is a grown-up in government and they'll put their foot down when you're doing something completely ridiculous. And adding more wind and solar to a grid that is already low carbon, it's just the stupidest thing I can think of because you're adding intermittent source of energy, albeit low carbon, to a grid that's already stable and low carbon. And from what I understand, um, between the Candus and the hydro, um, Ontario was fine. Uh, <laughs> I just don't understand how the government could be that financially irresponsible. Every solar panel you add to the grid in Ontario makes our grid dirtier. <laughs> wow. Wow. And this is this is this is the power of radiophobia. This is the power of um decades of anti nuclear information because I I I can't believe that you can do that to any other source of energy um unless people just have such an inbuilt um reaction against it being bad. Um, and that's, I, I really do believe that is the way forward is that, you know, you can't get political parties to change until you get public opinion to change. And public opinion needs to change for, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a leading indicator. The public opinion is actually going to change before the politicians um, and then they'll slowly get on board because they need the votes. So it, it all starts with changing hearts and minds one at a time. And it, it can be so discouraging, but, you know, just, wow, this, that is such an own goal for the climate, such an own goal for Canada, for the Canadian taxpayers, um, just about every way you slice it. Um, I'm, I'm afraid the same thing is happening in Taiwan. We have nuclear reactors that we're shutting down prematurely or not opening at all. And, um, now we're in a power crunch and we are going in heavily for solar and uh, offshore wind as 
as well. That is, in fact, my job. I hope nobody from my main job is listening, but I, I don't think it's, it's actually um, doing a very good job of replacing baseload energy. Um, because, again, um, there's the out-of-phase issue, but I think what's actually more important um, is the intermittency. Because if it's out-of-phase with demand, you can always take some gas offline. That's, you know, at least in Taiwan, where oh, we're, we're projected to go up to 50% gas, uh, which is not very clever in a world where gas is becoming so expensive. Okay, you can always take some gas offline if it's, if it's out of phase with demand. But the problem is it's out of phase, plus it's very intermittent. You never know when the wind's going to be blowing. Um, and while gas has some ability to, um, you can switch it on and off, um, up and down to some degree, it's just not optimal to always be adjusting to intermittent demand, unfortunately. Yeah, you, you basically need a full fossil backup. Uh, and I, I fear that, you know, the, 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 the way to replace wind these, or to, to fill in for solar and wind when they go dead is, is gas peaker plants. And of course, by putting more of this on the grid, you need more of the gas. And it's a it's a vicious circle. And I think Germany is finding this out. Europe, in fact, is finding this out right now with their um, the energy wind of, of Germany, where they you know, shut down their nuclear and built as much wind and solar as they could over the last 15 years. They're completely dependent on Russian gas for their energy now because they have no stable source. And I, I just expect people to see this because I'm aware of it. Why isn't the world, how do we make the world aware of what's happening and what the solution is? Well, I have to say, um, it's, it's one of those things where I always try to think back to two years ago, you know, when I was just you know, starting as a business reporter and I wasn't necessarily very aware of the nuclear issues. Um, before my my journey, what could I have said to my past self? Um, and it's it's very difficult because sometimes um, if if somebody holds an opinion and you tell them they're wrong, they just double down on that on that initial wrong opinion. Um, it's really an art to insert um, counter programming in a way that doesn't set off that human reactive response of you know, uh, okay, you says I'm. You said you just told me I'm wrong. I'm, you know, and I am offended now and I'm going to tell you you're wrong. And once you're locked in that dynamic, there's basically no way to um, resuscitate it. Um, there, you know, even if you do somehow convince them rationally that you're right, they're not going to be uh, feeling warm and fuzzy about you or your technology. So. Um, I've discovered that the best way to think about, to talk about nuclear, of course, we should point out the fact that, you know, the Germans really did, uh, you know, um, did do, uh, create a huge mess for themselves. We should point that out. We should point that out in the context of why nuclear is good. Um, but I'm always talking up nuclear for its positive qualities. I'm always talking up the technology of nuclear. I'm always getting people to see nuclear um, as a well-rounded technology with um, a lot of, um, that's why, you know, I, I talk about the different kinds of reactors. I get 
people to see how nuanced and interesting and um, full of potential nuclear is. I talk about the Cadu reactor. Goodness, another great thing about them is because they have that online refueling. They they do have still have that some of that research reactor DNA. Um, you can make a lot of medical isotopes in there because you can take put things in and then take things out on the other end. So when people catch details like that, they're just learning a neutral piece of information. It's like, hey, did did you know that you know the Candu reactor is the only uh, commercial reactor where you can make short-lived medical isotopes like lutetium. Um, and they're like, well, well, yeah, I, I guess, I guess I do use a lot. They, the, when I go to the doctors, they do use a lot of isotopes for medical care. I, I guess my, my father going in for his uh, prostate cancer treatment did, you know, they, they did need to use some lutetium or whatever. I, I, they make that connection when they're in a emotionally neutral or positive space. And that's actually the connections that you need to make um, so that they can challenge their prior assumptions without feeling like they themselves are being attacked. I think that is the way to go, but um, it's not always easy. That's a good strategy. If For those of us who are in the trenches fighting this battle uh, day by day and hearing the same tired arguments over and over again, um, we must sound crazy to the people who have been fed the main line. You know, if I tell someone, no, nobody died in Fukushima. No, Chernobyl actually saved more people than it killed by offsetting coal for 14 years. You know, people look at me like I'm crazy. It's like, no, you, you these are all evil things. These are horrible things. <laughs> but, you know, you have to ease people into these facts. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's a problem. Mm-hmm. You have to ease people in. And, and another thing is um, people really do shut down if you just throw too much information at the, at once. You need to create that internal curiosity that gets them to want to reach for that next piece of information like I did when I was starting to explore nuclear. And it was really like an adventure for me. It was like... Um, no, I was like a detective because um, I felt like a detective because, you know, I was meeting up with um, pro-nuclear activists and, you know, we'd be, you know, it's funny because when I, when I, if I may boast for <laughs> one minute, I am actually not just working in offshore wind in Taiwan. I'm Taiwan's number one offshore wind influencer. And I can waltz into like an industry function and, Everybody wants to buy me a drink. It's like, oh my God, Angelica's here. And, um, but when I meet up with nuclear activists, uh, you know, we all buy our own beers in this dingy little bar and they'll just be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is what I look, this is what I learned. This is what's going on. And uh, it, it's exciting. It actually feels more like reporting. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that to, 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 to bring people along with you on this journey of discovery. Um, it's a lot more fun and a lot more effective. And, you know, I, I'm not living this every day. I've been called a nuclear bro many times <laughs> on Twitter. Um, it happens. Um, and sometimes sometimes it's required. Sometimes, you know, you can't be too polite. If somebody's full of bullshit, you should absolutely call them out on their bullshit. And, uh, you know, especially if they are 
you know, just a bad faith person uh, online, the best thing you can do is just nail their bullshit to the wall. But you don't want to do that when it's your friend. You don't want to do that when it's somebody just parroting um, some some piece of, um, you know, those 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 ideas almost become like memes and they get passed around without a lot of reflection. And when somebody presents you with a piece of that inf- information, how you react in that moment can be so powerful. And um, if you can react in a playful way, a, a joking way, uh, or a, a light way that uh, introduces another piece of information without uh, the, the kind of, no, you're wrong, no, you're ignorant energy, um, then you might have just made, made an ally rather than, you know, somebody who's going to clam up, you know. It requires, it requires infinite patience and, um, and yeah, stay away from the ad hominems, um, listen to their concerns and address them logically and with facts uh, and don't, yeah. I've, I've had some success doing that and um, sometimes you're, you're arguing for the people that are listening uh, in fact, it, most of the time you're arguing for the for the silent uh, pe- listening majority who are, uh, you're not going to convince the people that have come out loudly against nuclear because it's too much of a personal uh, change in a lot of cases to for people to accept once they've positioned themselves as an enemy of nuclear on the internet uh, to to go back on that is very difficult and there are a few that have done that. Uh, and I praise them for 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 being able to do that. That's that's a difficult and challenging thing to do, just to admit that you're wrong about something. So I really respect people that have been able to do that. Yeah, and it's so important. I would say this. You know, I feel like we are 40 minutes into this um, <laughs> podcast. If you're listening to this, you're probably pro nuclear. And if you if you are pro nuclear and a part of the pro nuclear community. I beg you, please, um, there's a lot of people who are in this community because they are um, able to stand up to social pressure for what's right, and then becoming right becomes so important to them. And they start um, making that a part of their identity, to be right on every little thing. And then when you have a movement, you essentially have a bigger tent. And then you have a lot of um, people who are... um, at loggerheads with each other, even though they agree on 90, 95% of everything. But one has a pet technology. It's like, oh no, we should use molten salt reactors for everything. Oh no, we should use this other technology. And no, you know, and it's so unnecessary. I, I, I really, I really, thorium. <laughs> oh my God, the thorium, the thorium bros. Um, so <laughs> we, we really need to find a way to, um, to say yes and yes and you know it's like oh yes you know that you know molten salt reactors can be great and and this can be great and that can be great and if we join together and um, amplify each other hold each other up explore each other tech technologies with curiosity even if it's not our own pet solution then we are going to be a more formidable force in the world um and there's frankly, like our biggest enemy is not anybody who's pro-nuclear at all. Even the ones that we think are, you know, not on the right path or, you know. Um, it's the 
vast, um, vast percentage of normies who just simply are a bit oblivious. They might be anti-nuclear. They might be even just, you know, nuclear oblivious. And that's the inertia we have to overcome to get nuclear rolling in this world. Yeah, and that takes a lot of just individual con conversations and patience and an army of people willing to to go out there and talk to to these people and, and just give them these facts. And and I, I'm going to sound a little bit, I know this is the rational mind, but I'm going to go a little bit of woo-woo here, uh, Al. I believe that, you know, you really, it's, it's, when you go down, get down to it, let's, let's talk about love. Let's talk about love for this technology. Um, I really do believe that love is infectious. And when you truly love something, you don't get tired of defending it. You don't get tired that you're not getting like, you're not meeting your KPIs or something because you truly, um, I truly believe this technology is so cool. I truly believe this technology has so much potential. Um, just talking about nuclear power gives me more energy to keep talking about nuclear power. So I am a self-sustaining chain reaction in and of myself. And to the extent <laughs> that I can make an impact in the world, that's great. But you have that love that's self-sustaining. You reach out to community so that your community becomes self-sustaining, self-nourishing. Um, it becomes, and I have found this to be true, like the pro-nuclear community. Yes, I, there are a few like oddballs, whatever. But in general, very friendly, very nice, very mutually supporting. Um, and then you just take that energy and you spread it outwards. And hopefully it can, uh, we can reach a stage when, when people think about the pro-nuclear community, they'll think, oh my God, they're so amazing in that they're, you know, willing to share information, um, willing to sit down and explain and just radiate that, 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 that love for fact and knowledge and truth and all technology, of course, but also for each other and for ultimately what nuclear can do for the world. Um, because, you know, ultimately it's a technology and technology um, is useful because uh, we as human beings, we have needs. And I believe that nuclear um, ultimately can lift so many people out of poverty. Uh, to electrify the world um, to the extent that people want to in order to um, save the planet. We're talking about not just replacing the current grid. It, we might have to three times, four times our grid to electrify our transportation, electrify our heavy industries. Um, and I believe that nuclear has the ability to do that. Give us a, let us keep our standard of living and give those in the third world a decent, comparable standard of living through through abundant power. Ultimately, that's what it's about. That's a great message, Angelica. Thank you so much for, for coming on my show and chatting with me about nuclear energy and, and your advocacy. So that was Angelica Ng, a journalist from Taiwan, uh, discussing nuclear advocacy and communicating uh, for energy policy uh, in a polarized medium. Uh, we got cut off at the end there. Uh, internet between uh, Ottawa and Taiwan uh, went down for a little bit. Uh, but I'd like to thank Angelica for joining me on The Rational View. 
I'm going to fire off a t-shirt to her uh, for coming on the show. Thank you for listening. And I hope you stay tuned to The Rational View. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.